Welcome, everyone, to another regularly scheduled rerun. A couple of times a month, I put out a classic episode of the show that I think is definitely still worth your time, so I hope you check it out. But uh, this gives me a little bit of extra time that I need to do some work behind the scenes and gear up for the next uh, slate of new episodes. But, of course, uh, if you are not already a member, let me tell you what you're missing out on, because while everyone gets the reruns, members get brand new bonus content every time there is a rerun episode. And so the most recent we have posted is a conversation that Amanda and I had about the ever-shifting landscape of sexual harassment and assault allegations, and we went far beyond uh, what has been talked about in the show so far. And, you know, we, we did, as, as the show generally does, we try to take the 10,000-foot view, get a broad perspective on things, understand, uh, you know, the, some, of, some of the moving pieces and, uh, and underlying themes. But then we also dove really deep, uh, as we often try to do. We try to dig into some of the crevices of these issues and understand them in a really deep and nuanced way. So, you know, we talked about Al Franken and, and some of the people who are either defending him or at the very least lamenting the double standard between the parties and, and how different people are being treated differently because of different perspectives on what to do with a bad apple you find in your barrel. One party seems, you know, very anxious to get the bad apples out of their barrel while the other seems, uh, to approach this subject with a lot less urgency. So, you know, that, that's a frustrating double standard. We also discuss uh, the benefit of consent education classes. So, so we, we try to cover a broad spectrum of things, but the one that we dove in on, the, this, uh, this piece of insight we think we have come across that, that was the most hard fought based on uh, multiple conversations man that I have had over the past weeks is a pretty detailed, pretty thorough explanation of why some women get offended when they are asked out at work, regardless of how the question is posed. And, and I think this is something that really baffles a lot of people, you know, guys who just don't understand how it could be offensive to ask a woman out at work if it is done in a very, uh, you know, thoughtful and, and respectful way. Why would that be perceived as bad or negative? So we cover that. And as a bonus, I give my theory on how you can actually ask a coworker out at work in light of this new information. So uh, all of that is available to members right now. Uh, I think it's a good conversation worth checking out. So if you are not already a member, I hope you will consider joining up. You can join us at patreon.com slash best of the left. And remember that we are in the midst of our two in one winter fundraiser, which means that uh, we are raising money both for the show itself through memberships and also to fight climate change with my upcoming climate ride event. And so all the details are right there on Patreon. You can also find details on our website, bestoftheleft.com. And thanks, of course, to a few new donors who have signed up recently, Emily N., Craig B., Eileen T., Mary Jo B., Fred G., Jonathan D., and Stephen H. Uh, thanks to all of the Climate Ride donors, everyone who signed up on Patreon recently. Don't forget that all Climate Ride donations are tax deductible. So as we come to the end of the year and you're making your charitable donations for tax and do-goodery purposes, uh, please keep our fundraiser and Climate Ride in mind. And now I hope you'll enjoy today's episode, which I think is one of the most important that uh, we made this year, although maybe one of the most underrated. 
It addresses the issue of disability rights. And of course, this is something that it is incredibly easy to ignore throughout your life if you don't have a disability. But as the title of the episode may remind you, that uh, the disabled are an identity group that literally any one of us might join at any time. So it would probably behoove all of us to pay attention whether it currently affects us personally or not. We see it as how can disability add further lens, add further perspective, and bring more people to the collective table to talk about the issues groups are facing. This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. To support the work we do, get commercial-free versions of every episode, and occasional members-only bonus content, visit the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Counterspin, Talk Poverty Radio, who recently became off-kilter, Backstory, Black Girls Talking, and a TED Talk by Elise Roy. When 2,000 people gathered on the White House lawn on July 26, 1990, for the signing of the Americans with Disabilities Act, it was the largest gathering ever of journalists for a disability story, activist and author Mary Johnson noted in Fairs Magazine Extra. Though most of the reporters missed the fact that the White House itself lacked the accessible restrooms mandated by the act. Well, 25 years on, how much has changed in terms of coverage of people with disabilities? Beth Haller is professor of mass communication at Towson University and author of Representing Disability in an Ableist World. She runs the blog Media Dis and Dat, and she joins us now by phone. Welcome to Counterspin, Beth Haller. Thank you. Well, I was pleased by the amount of attention that the Americans with Disabilities Act anniversary got. Uh, but there was something a little frustrating about the formula. You know, we've come a long way. There's still a long way to go, seems to be the angle. And I worry a little that that sounds like it's accepting on the way to okay as okay. You know, it kind of lacks urgency and makes it sound like discrimination against people with disabilities is a problem, but maybe not a very high priority. But you have tracked coverage over time. Do you think things are really better now, not just in terms of the quantity of media attention, but in the quality or substance of that attention? Yeah, I think since 2008, when the amendments were added, I think there's been a more of an urgency on the part of the federal government to actually enforce the ADA. And I think that has gotten a little bit more media attention because the Department of Justice, uh, EEOC, Department of Education, putting out press releases whenever they're going after somebody for ADA violations. So I think there's been some pretty good, consistent media coverage of that. But then also with the kind of dropping of traditional legacy media out of the picture, it's been a lot more of just kind of press releases from the federal government that are getting kind of media play, if you call the posting of things on the internet media play. So I think there's several things going on, both with the media and with more enforcement of the ADA. But I agree with you that I think it was great to see all the coverage of the ADA 25th anniversary, and I saw all the media that did stories, but they can't just drop it now. They do anniversary stories almost every year now, and I think they did more now that it was the 25th anniversary. But I think in terms of actually covering disability rights and the ADA and other disability discrimination cases, they still need to keep after 
the coverage and make sure that they're covering this very important area of our society that just was ignored for so many years. Lots of folks don't realize that enforcement of the ADA really is still an issue. You know, it didn't come with much funding for enforcement, and it always requires you have to sue. You know, there's something funny about a right that you have to bring a lawsuit in order to exercise. You know, it's all kind of based around legislation. And from the journalist perspective, it'd be great if they had some other modes of approaching these issues other than or in addition to around lawsuits. It's not always happening that it's a lawsuit. I think, you know, sometimes the federal government is just going after a city or a business that they see has been in flagrant violation of the ADA for 25 years. So I think sometimes the threats are um, enough. (laughs) Sad. I mean, I just think that that's the way it works in America. You know, lawsuits are the way that a lot of civil rights have happened. And um, I just think in particular, the disability community has had to use that because if you can't even get into the building to protest, better to get your lawyer to file a lawsuit. And I mean, I think nobody's writing about the fact that a lot of companies, local government, lots of institutions have just flagrantly violated the ADA for years. And that's like 25 years of noncompliance that I don't think we would put up with in a lot of other areas, and so I'm glad that the federal government is going after lots of places that haven't complied. Absolutely. I wonder what you think, this might just be a personal thing of mine, but what do you think about the thing where the journalist uses a wheelchair for a day or for a few days and writes a story about that saying, you know, now I really understand? That's kind of one of my least favorite tropes in in media coverage of disability issues is the I was disabled for a day. Are there any stories like that or tropes in media that when you see them, you just grit your teeth um, or that you'd like journalists to kind of drop in coverage of this issue? Yeah, I think the disability community is very much against those spend a day or an hour in a wheelchair because all it does is reinforce kind of pity narratives and it doesn't build awareness. It just builds more negative attitudes toward people with disabilities. I think anything that is causing pity in the news media is not a good thing because I think people already have a lot of misunderstanding about the disability experience in America. and they're, So they're already going at it from the wrong place. But the media is reinforcing that. I think it's really a negative stigma that happens. To me, the flip side also is this kind of like super crypt narrative where people are held up as inspirations. You know, there's a great video from the late Stella Young in Australia about the problems of applauding people for just getting up in the morning because they have a disability. That also, to me, is a problem because then there's no expectations that people with disabilities are going to be part of our society and working in our jobs and, you know, our next-door neighbors and running for office doing all the other parts of societal work that everybody else does, if you just see them as like, oh, they got up out of bed, isn't that great? I think those are really problematic, too, because, again, you're already dealing with a lot of negative attitudes of the audience of the media. So I think they need to really step up in the news media and get to real, more nuanced stories about somebody's real experience. And that's why I think social media and the Internet have really been a boon 
for the disability community because now a lot more people with disabilities are writing their own stories, telling their own stories, and there's not that kind of filtering through the news media, but then it flips. So, you know, people are blogging or talking about their lives on social media, and then the news media comes calling. And I think when that happens, it comes from a different place because the news media is getting kind of educated by the disabled writer, and then they do go to a story, I think, with a little bit better understanding. So I'm a big proponent of what's going on with social networking from the disability community because I think they've really harnessed it for good to kind of get their own stories out there. There was a Twitter discussion last week called, which the hashtag was just our disability stories. And I think it was great. You know, the Smithsonian was involved and a lot of the Disability Visibility Project was involved. And so there was just a lot of kind of focus on real disability stories in America. And I think journalists probably got an education if they read any of those too about what the real story is and Hopefully story ideas for the future, too. Well, we'll end on that positive note. We've been speaking with Beth Haller of Towson University. Her book is Representing Disability in an Ableist World, Essays on Mass Media. Her blog is Media Dis and Dat. Thanks for joining us this week on Counterspin, Beth Haller. Appreciate it. Thank you. me to talk about how disability fits into civil rights is Rebecca Coakley. She's the executive director of the National Council on Disability. Thanks for joining us, Rebecca. Thank you so much, Rebecca. I'm thrilled to be here. So tell us a little bit about you. I mean, you've been at NCD for a while, but you've got a, a rich history of the kinds of work that you've done. I've been at the National Council on Disability as the executive director for about two and a half years now. Um, prior to that, I uh, had a stint over at the Administration for Community Living, which was phenomenal. I got to work with uh, Kathy Greenlee and Henry Claypool and those folks. Prior to that, I spent over two years at the White House as the Director of Priority Placement for Public Engagement. So I was responsible for outreach and recruitment of all of our diversity groups for roles in the administration. So I was responsible for engaging with race, ethnic, religious minorities, people with disabilities, the LGBT community, women, veterans, and recent college graduates. Um, But I've worked in sort of the broad civil rights space for most of my life. Uh, Both my parents are little people, unlike most people with disabilities. I grew up with a sense of disability as already part of diversity from birth. Uh, My mom was a disabled students counselor. And so growing up in San Francisco during the height of the AIDS crisis, she lost a number of her students. And we, many times, we ended up being the only people at their funerals. Because to my parents, it was important that somebody was there. And so growing up with a sense of how disability sort of fit into both, you know, the LGBT community um, and even the broader civil rights work. My dad was the son of a federal judge in Alabama who was responsible for throwing multiple uh, freedom writers in jail. Um, There are multiple pages about my paternal grandfather in uh, Congressman Lewis's autobiography, and we joke about it frequently um, when we run into each other. But my parents really did have that core value of injustice anywhere calls for justice everywhere and really raised me with that. And so growing up in the Bay Area, being engaged in disability rights from birth, 
now being in a mixed race marriage, raising two African-American kids with disabilities, being able to really drive a civil rights agenda and narrative within the work at the council, um, and then also be able to drive a disability rights narrative within the broader dialogue of civil rights is easily the favorite thing that I do. And people often think, I think, about civil rights as being about race, right? And, and that's sort of the, that's, that's where your brain goes when you hear the phrase civil rights movement. You describe the two movements, disability rights and, and civil rights, as being interdependent, but do you see them as overlapping or related? I think they definitely overlap. I mean, I think when you're looking at issues of students of color in special education and in the juvenile justice system, there is significant overlap. Um, when you're looking at issues of immigration and detention, a large number of people in detention for immigration issues are people with disabilities. Uh, when you look at the issues of poverty and homelessness, disability definitely comes in. When you look at veterans' issues, disability comes in. Um, when you look at women's issues, women are more likely to be caregivers with disabilities, caring for an elder parent or a child. And so disability really fundamentally runs through all of these movements. We've seen over the years the progressive movement um, bring in racial justice, LGBT justice as sort of core to the progressive movement. Those are those are issues that even if those are not, even if you are not a person of color, even if you are not, you do not identify as LGBT, those are still issues you care about, much as, you know, climate change has sort of become a, a core progressive value. How do we get to the point where disability is there. I mean, we have one in five Americans live with a disability, so it's not like it's some, you know, tiny minority that we're talking about. How, how do we get to a point where it's a core progressive value and issue? I think there's a couple of different ways to approach it. One, I think, and I think it's sort of an inside-outside game um, to a certain extent. I think one way is our community has to reflect those communities. We have to be serious and deliberate about developing disabled leaders of color, who are members of the NAACP, the National Action Network, the National Congress of Negro Women, the National Council of La Raza. We have to develop disability leaders who are LGBTQIA. Um, and we have to support those parts of their identity. And we have to see that reflected in our leadership. We have to see that reflected in our, um, in our conferences. And we have to see that um, integrated in our rhetoric and the language that we use when we talk about inclusion, when we talk about what our community looks like. Um, the other piece of it, and I go back to what my colleague uh, Talila Lewis says and what Kaite Davidson used to say, which is we spend a lot of time worrying about finding allies and not enough about creating allies. And so I think there is something to that. When I think about people that I've worked with over the years, relationships I've developed, colleagues I've, I've done some really neat things with who may have had nothing to do with disability, but they knew somebody who had a disability or they had had a hip replacement um, or, you know, they went to school with someone or they had a teacher who was deaf or they had some tangible connection or we were even able to approach it from the case of, OK, you know, you're really active in the trans rights community and saying, OK, let's talk about disability and trans and talk about sort of the growing fights that both of our movements have had and where there's overlap and where there's intersectionality. And I think part of the challenge is not being afraid. You know, you brought up the environmental movement, and I think that's a good case to look at. I think so many times people see, you know, preservation as anti-ADA or, you know, um, discussions of you know, new technology that the disability community wants leading to more pollution or whatever the case may be, rather than focusing on places where it works. And I think a great example of that is our colleagues in Chicago 
um, at Access Living have built easily one of the top independent living centers in the country. And it's also one of Chicago's biggest green buildings. And I think looking at finding those, those intersections, in that case, the intersection of green design and universal design in architecture, and highlighting those things as examples of where it works. Um, you know, I think also for us, it's being able to have those allies that understand that disability is not a bad thing. Um, I had a conversation with some folks this last week talking about disproportionality of students of color in special education. And yes, that's a huge issue. Um, but at the same time, if we say, okay, we're going to, you know, let's just say we X'd out any students of color in special education. What happens to those students that need the services? And so I think having that conversation that about disability in the context of rights. Um, your son has a learning disability. Your son is autistic. Your daughter is autistic. Um, you know, there's, not, there's very little data about girls of color with autism. Um, okay, your daughter is African-American or Latina and autistic. You're afraid of them going into special education because of the further stigmatization. But let's look at the services. Let's look at IDEA from the context of these are the things that we can use to help set your child up for success. And it will help them in the long run. It will help them be successful in the long run. No parent is going to say no to that. But if you say... If you talk about special education as a place, oh, we're taking your kid out, we're, we're segregating yeah. your child and putting them over there, no parent, I wouldn't sign off on that as a parent. And so sometimes how we frame the issues um, from a rights basis versus a stigma perspective, I think, is, is a real opportunity. But I think that there's always the challenge that these movements face in addressing disability and decentering the conversation, whether it be on race, on ethnicity, on religion, on gender because they don't want to dilute the message. But we see it as how can disability add further lens, add further perspective, and bring more people to the collective table to talk about the issues groups are facing. An issue that has really sort of surfaced as the modern-day civil rights battle that we're, that we're fighting is criminal justice reform. And we're actually seeing a lot of bipartisan momentum around the need for criminal justice reform, although people are coming at it from different places. Um, it, does disability have a place here, and, and is that something that you're working on? Oh, definitely. It's something that I can say um, my team and I over at the National Council on Disability and a number of colleagues in the disability community are engaged in. And I have to say it's very exciting because disability is at the table with the broader civil rights groups. We've been doing, um, we've been working with groups like the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights, Leadership Conference, and other organizations that are, that are pushing broad-based um, criminal justice and police reform. And it's been exciting to see disability not be segregated to the short bus in this conversation, um, as our issues tend to be. And I think part of it has been because we've been able to come to the table with a value add. You know, for example, we know that in, in New Mexico, 75% of police shootings have been, um, the victims have been people with mental health disabilities. 75%. 75% in the state of New Mexico. Um, you know, as we have conversations about the data collection piece, I think disability really comes into it. We don't have good data on disability and police violence. Um, and even in the Death and Custody Act, in the, in the last reauthorization, disability wasn't included as one of those categories, which we definitely would like to see in any sort of potential reauthorization or amendment. But a tie to that, too, I mean, I think it would be really important and really critical to look at disabilities that have occurred or that somebody has acquired while in police custody, uh, you know, to look at sort of the Freddie, the Freddie Gray case. 
um, as an example, you know, how many disabilities are acquired while somebody is in custody from the time that they're arrested through processing, et cetera. I think, you know, looking at Ferguson specifically, we've had a number, we've heard a number of times from people with disabilities who are down there in that area, um, activists like Heather Damian and others who, you know, Heather, for example, um, was removed from her wheelchair and she had GoPros mounted to her chair and police removed her from her chair. And the other protesters got engaged and were very upset about it because Heather's been there since day one as a resident of the area filming what's been going on. Um, and I think as we have these conversations, people continue to point to CIT training, crisis intervention training, as the answer. But as we look at CIT training, it only specifically typically looks at mental health and intellectual and maybe intellectual and developmental disabilities. It's not a solution. Eight hours of training does not teach every law enforcement officer how to approach any person with any type of disability. These issues are not specific just to mental health and IDDD. But more broadly, you know, we have cases of people with who have seizure disorders, having a seizure in the car and getting shot by cops. Um, you know, we had somebody who was tased repeatedly who was, I believe they were deaf, and the car ran over them. Or even the case actually in Fairfax County a couple of weeks ago where it came out that Fairfax County police had arrested a gentleman, a Nigerian immigrant who was deaf, um, who was in police custody for six weeks supposedly stealing an iPad at National Airport, which they later found and recovered that he ha- and learned that he hadn't stolen it. But he was in jail for six weeks without a sign language interpreter. Six weeks without being able to ask for your basic human needs because they're denying you reasonable accommodations. And so I think there really is a disability voice in this conversation. And, you know, and as I as I remind my allies frequently in the disability community, it is critical while our voice is there that we center the conversation. We don't decentralize the Black Lives Matter conversation. This is not an all lives matter conversation or Black Lives Matter and disability lives matter too. Um, rather, in the context of Black Lives Matter, not losing sight that within Black Lives Matter, there are black people with disabilities that are running into these incidents over and over again. And we need to be addressing these issues. And as we address them, we'll see overall improvement for the entire community. So we're also celebrating a major anniversary for the Americans with Disabilities Act this year, the ADA. Um, And there's often discussion about a a so-called ADA generation. And I think you technically would be part of the ADA generation. Mm -hmm. You are not a pale, stale male dude in a wheelchair. Um, Can you talk a little bit about what the future of the us looks like? Definitely. Um, You know, the term ADA generation was something we actually coined years ago um, to really be able to differentiate and to really point out what happens when you have IDEA, the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, which actually turns 40 this fall, intersect with the ADA. So you have young people with disabilities who ideally have been included in K-12 public education, you know, receiving free and appropriate public education in the least restrictive environment engaging with their peers. Um, I think it fundamentally shapes the diversity of our country. I think when you think about how prior to IDEA, when you would look across a classroom, you know, prior to IDEA and post Brown v. Board, you saw one type of diversity enter the classroom. However, if you talk to most folks our age, and they're, you know, mid-30s and younger, they have no memory of a time when students with disabilities were not in public schools. And so that shapes the brain. That shapes how people think about diversity. They don't remember a time when Linda the librarian was not 
on Sesame Street as one of the most widely known disabled characters. Kids to or teenagers today, because I don't let my kids watch it, even though they should, um, <laughs> are not going to remember a time pre Peter Dinklage mm-hmm. being on television mm-hmm. and what the portrayal of Tyrion Lannister has meant. My husband refers to Tyrion Lannister as the modern um, Sidney Poitier, as the modern role of um, uh, Mr. Tibbs in, okay. to a certain effect. And you're talking, of course, about the popular show Game of Thrones. Yes, I'm talking about Game of Thrones. And I think when we talk about the future of our movement and what that means, it means young people that are graduating today with the expectation of employment. Young people that are graduating today and saying... You know, yeah, like all other college kids, I may go live at bunk at home for a year and a half after I graduate, but that doesn't mean I can't go get a job. Um, I think there's also an ongoing conversation, as there is any time there is a war, about attention to veterans' issues and veterans with disabilities. I was talking to a colleague who runs an internship program for interns with disabilities recently, uh, and he said, well, you know, over here at the VA, our folks are going to be hesitant because it's got the word disability in there. And to me, that's sad. To me, when I hear that people use terms like special needs or handicapable or differently abled, it's sad and it's frustrating, um, both because it's very paternalistic, but also it disconnects people from their civil rights. Nowhere in IDEA, ADA, or any other piece of disability public policy will you see the word special needs. Will you see handicapable? Those words were created by non-disabled people to make them feel better about disability. And so when I claim disability, I claim it like the armor I wear. I claim disability as an act, as a political action, as an act of claiming my civil rights. And so as we see um, people with disabilities, particularly young people with disabilities, make the fight to claim that, it really is a political action. And, it's, and we're a growing politicized community in a lot of ways, I think. It'll be interesting to see over the next several years, where this community moves and what it really deems its priorities, because they're not just seeing disability issues only as their concern. They're also people of color. They're also people who are LGBTQIA. Um, They don't see their identity as a hat that they switch off, that before, whether it was the movement forcing them, their family sort of forcing them, or their own feeling like they could only wear one identity at a time, we're really seeing a shift in that direction. And I think that also leads to the broader conversation on disability rights as part of civil rights. You know, we've been talking about how immigration restrictions have grown over time. It reminded me of an interview we did a couple of years ago about another type of immigration ban that was in place for more than a century. In 1882, a new federal immigration law barred anyone who was, as the law said, a convict, lunatic, idiot, or any person unable to take care of him or herself without becoming a public charge. And that list of exclusions included children and adults with any number of physical disabilities or perceived defects. The list would include varicose veins, uh, flat feet, uh, hearing impairment, vision impairments, 
short stature, poor physique. This is University of Iowa historian Douglas Bainton. He says it's hard to tell exactly how many immigrants with disabilities were kept out of the U.S. For one thing, discrimination didn't begin at Ellis Island. Because the shipping companies did their own inspections. Because if they brought an immigrant over who was rejected, they would have to pay a fine for that person and they have to bring them back at no charge. The ticket sellers, the ticket agents who were spread all over Europe also did their own inspections. These were non-medical people, but they would refuse to sell tickets to people who they thought would be excluded because they would be penalized by the shipping companies. And what this suggests to me is that people with really debilitating uh, disabilities might not have made it this far. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Th- that this- well, they wouldn't have gotten through the initial screens. And also, if they had a mobility impairment, they wouldn't be able to get on the ship in the first place. Right, right. So can you give me an example of what this process actually looked like in practice? You know, uh, these officials deciding sort of on the spur of the moment that somebody was defective, right? There was uh, an Armenian Turk in 1905 by the name of Donabet Musekian who um, was diagnosed as suffering from feminism. That was the term that was used on his medical certificate. And it referred to a lack of male sexual organs or underdeveloped organs as a result of what we now know to be a hormonal deficiency. I mean, how would they, how would they know that? It must have been from a, a, a facial trait? Yes. Because from, I, I know from reading your article that Basically, people are walking by, and when they see somebody who seems defective, they write an L on their back. Is that right? Right. There were there was a whole code for different kinds of defects. Oh. So X X for mental defect, L for lame. So the first inspection was really just a snapshot diagnosis as immigrants streamed past the inspectors, and they would pull some people out, chalk on their back, and then uh, give them a closer inspection. Mm. So with Musekian, his hearing was extraordinarily brief. It was as if the board that was examining him was very uncomfortable. In this case, uh, one of them said, I move to exclude as likely to become a public charge. A second panel member said, uh, I second the motion. And third said, he is excluded. And uh, that was the entire hearing. But he, uh, he appealed to Washington, which all immigrants had the right to do. And he wrote in his appeal that he had always supported himself. He was a photographer, a weaver and dyer of rugs, and a a cook had worked at all of these. Gosh. And he wrote in his letter, I am not ill and have no contagious disease. This is not my fault. It has come from God and my mother. Hmm. What harm can I do by being deprived of male organs? When he left, uh, he was fleeing the violent oppression of Armenians in Turkey and had been made to renounce his citizenship when he left. So he he explained this in his letter, and he said, better that you should kill me now than send me back. Hmm. And the Armenian genocide uh, took place just a few years after uh, he was sent back. Wow. So much of this focused around not being able to find work. Um, mm-hmm. you know, d- what kind of evidence would they have of that? I mean, was that actually mm-hmm. true, you think? Um, that's the thing. There is a widespread assumption that a disability means being incapable of working. So in the case of Musekian, there really seems to be no reason to assume he wouldn't be able to find work. But there was a immigration service memo that explained why they should not be admitted, which was that their abnormality becomes known to their fellow workers who mock them and taunt them. 
which uh, impedes the work <laughs> at hand. And uh, so employers know this and are unlikely to hire them. So it's for their so own good in, in many ways. Yeah, right. right. Well, basically we're saying that we have to discriminate against them now because they're likely to encounter discrimination later. So you say that these restrictions grew over time. Does that mean that they grew increasingly accepted? I mean, was there a sort of uh, turn against people with disabilities mm -hmm. at, at the beginning of the 20th century? Or was this just a sort of a more bureaucratic uh, momentum that built? Well, I think there are a lot of different factors. One of them is the standardization of society in the industrial age. The term normal comes into uh, common use near the end of the 19th century. Mm. And it becomes a very powerful concept. People used to talk about human nature. And then it shifted around the turn of the 20th century to a concern with what is normal, counting people, measuring people, seeing what the bell curve shows us about what are normal characteristics. And it's tied in with a lot of changes, the growth of cities, industrialization, where not only do you need standardized parts and replaceable parts, but standardized and replaceable human beings, mm. workers. People with uh, disabilities don't fit as a cog in that larger machine. So how long were these laws on the books? I mean, you say they sort of peak in the early 20th century. Then what happened? The immigration laws do not take out the language having to do with uh, specific disabilities or defects that are excludable until the 1990 Act. And still today, uh, we exclude people who are likely to become a public charge, and that's still a means of keeping people out with disabilities. So it still goes on. talk about allyship, particularly in light of how much ableism exists in this world. Everything from actions down to, to language, like you had talked about, Crystal, earlier. Uh, so I would like to hear your thoughts, both of you, on allies and sort of the notion of allyship. What do, what do you guys, what are your thoughts on that? Oh, I mean, I mean, basically, my whole thing about allyship, whether it's about disability or race or gender or gender identity or anything like that, is that the best thing for you to, that allies can do, I think, is just to signal boost and amplify the voices of people who have less privilege. Right. So if you are a non-disabled person and you are interested in being, you know, learning how to be a good ally, you got to listen to disabled people. You got to listen to them. You got to. Um, amplify the things that they're talking about, the issues that they're concerned about. And, and that's really like the number one thing I think that you can and should do as an ally. Like that's where it all starts because, you know, how are you going to know what disabled people care about, what they feel like are issues that are not being addressed? Like how are you going to do that without listening to them and reading what they're writing and, and 
the, you know, seeing what they're talking about, that's like the only way you're going to do it. And I think that's a really good place to start. I mean, like disability is such a broad spectrum. There's so many kinds of disabilities and so many people within those disability groups that have varying opinions that like it's really just the number one thing you could do is just listen and signal boost and, you know, I think really just start from there. Mm-hmm. That for me, I really like how Crystal focuses on the individual level. But for me, I would add to that what organizations, what organizations can do. And so one thing that I've noticed within both disability organizations and black organizations is the lack of focus about all areas of disability. But then just within disabled organizations, the lack and resistance of talking about race, of talking about anything other than disability, but particularly race and gender issues. So I really would like to see disability organizations really step it up in that um, focus of getting more diverse voices and faces within their advocacy work, within their strategic um, operation when it comes to getting disabled experience to the masses and improve our lives. When it comes to black organizations, it really um, dumbfounds me that Village is not a prominent initiative within their focus. And if it is, it takes on a more medical model standpoint. And I really wish that black organizations would realize that disability is just as important as poverty, just as important as educational inequality, just as important as discrimination when it comes to employment. It is just, just that important because you can become disabled at any time in your life, not just at birth. So I really wish that black organizations would step up their allyship to support disabled black people like me and Crystal who are speaking out, who are doing advocacy work, and to really bring a better understanding about disability to our community because black people, we know somebody who has a disability. Mm-hmm. And, you know, either we know them or we know of them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're not, you know, we're not sitting at home. We're not in the back room anymore. We're out here. And so for black organizations particularly to not have disability within their prime focus is doing a great disservice to us. And for me, organizations have to really step up their allyship um, when it comes to supporting disabled people in general and black disabled people particularly. Yeah. And I think like it just like going back to like social media and stuff like that, like it's it's really important. Like if you want to be a good ally and that's where you're going to start, like on Twitter or Tumblr or whatever, like, it's really nice to signal boost, like, for people who maybe don't have that kind of reach that you have. Like, I don't want to be critical of any one person or any one, like, kind of movement or anything, but it's really, like, disheartening when you see people talking about intersectional intersectionality in general and they're like yeah race class gender and gender identity and then like disability is like always left out like Mm -hmm. I was telling Melissa Melissa that I wanted to um I was joking with a friend about like creating a Twitter bot that like would scrape all of those tweets and like retweet them and add like and disability because like they're always (laughs) always it's always left out it's always the last one of the last things that people like think of as a identity that you can like genuinely have and and like take seriously and be like proud of and also an identity that like comes along with a lot of other like political sort of issues and and problems um so yeah it's just it's just really the main thing you can do just like signal boost and listen to people who are in that community and and try to go from there like don't one of the things I really hate in allyship is if like 
an ally or some group or whatever um, does something and, you know, you speak out as a disabled person who was maybe offended by it or you think it's wrong, like, one of the things you should not do is tell me that I'm misunderstood or that I'm taking it the wrong way. Like, don't. Yeah. One of the most frustrating things is to be told that, like, no, no, you just don't get it. Like, I, I get it. Like, if you offended me, then I get it, you know? And, mm-hmm. and so that's a, one of the other things that's like really important to remember. Like, don't try to speak over me or, you know, devalue like my response to something if I think it was ableist or offensive in some way. Like, it's just not good, so don't try it. <laughs> that is definitely not good allyship. <laughs> and going back to what Chris said about intersectionality, if your focus is not does not include disability, then it is not intersectional. If your mm-hmm. feminism or womanism does not include disabled women, it is not intersectional. Mm-hmm. So understand that if disability is not somewhere within your work, you know, and it's not just you know mentioning disability but including us fully and not being tokens to project your own work or whatever your organization is trying to do, that it's not inclusive and it's not intersectional. And yeah. I really wish that people would understand that. And I should add, too, uh, going on with that, not to get, like, super political, but one of the things I always notice is Go about, ahead. okay, well, I'm going, I'm going. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> one of the things I always notice, though, about disability is that, like, when people do include us, you know, people who are doing intersectional work, one of the, like, two of the only times we ever get discuss disability ever really is discussed is when people talk about right to die or when people talk about abortion. And if you're a disabled person and you consider yourself progressive or, you know, liberal or whatever, and you never see your identity mentioned you know, by other progressives, other liberal people, except for when they're talking about like how you should probably be die or whatever, <laughs> like it's just, it does not make you feel good, you know? So I really think people need to um, consider the ways in which they do include disability, like Melissa was saying, if you're a political organization or whatever, and you do talk about disability, but it's like always an add-on, or you only talk about it in terms of like, people should have access to abortion, or they should, you know, right to die should be whatever, should be legal all the time. And I should say right now, like, I think abortion is uh, something that people should have you know, free, legal access, easy access to, I think everybody, should, like, I'm very, very on, in favor of that. But like, it really is kind of um, upsetting. Like when you only hear disability talked about in those kinds of terms politically, it's, it's not great. But yeah, so I'm, I'm not, I'm gonna get off that now because I don't want to. No, but that's a, that's a, a very, I think, important point. Cause that's not something that you, you hear often. Right. And we realize that, you know, disabled people, when it comes to politics, we experience disparities in almost every aspect of poverty, health care, education, employment, you know, um, access to transportation, access to resources. Mm-hmm. All those issues fit within disability advocacy. Mm-hmm. So if you're talking about those issues, then you need to be including disability in some way, shape or form and it not be an add-on. It should be an integral part in your discussions, within your work, as everything else. Those things oftentimes are talked about around community, right? Mm -hmm. And it's like people with disabilities live in your community. Oh, right. (laughs) We're here. here. So it shouldn't be an afterthought. People with disabilities live in your communities. They have a right to live in your communities just as you do. And so they should be included. Yeah. 
It's just simple as that. You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, stop H.R. 620, tell Congress to protect the Americans with Disabilities Act. As mentioned in our first clip from Counterspin, there is little enforcement of the nearly 27-year-old Americans with Disabilities Act, also known as the ADA. Every time their civil rights are infringed upon, citizens with disabilities must fight to defend those rights in court. That's not an ideal situation, but it's often the path that produces most immediate results in the society we live in. The reality is that businesses, even after 27 years, continue to blatantly ignore ADA compliance, and now a bipartisan-backed bill always something to be worried about, has been reintroduced by Representative Ted Poe of Texas that will weaken the one tool available to people with disabilities fighting for their civil rights and the primary way the ADA is enforced. H.R. 620, or the ADA Education and Reform Act of 2017, sounds lovely, in an attempt to, quote, protect business owners, unquote, who are already violating the law, H.R. 620 puts even more of a burden on the person whose rights are being violated. If this bill passes, a disabled person must first be denied access, then must determine that violations of the law have occurred, then must provide the business with specific written notice of which provisions of the law were violated and when, and finally, the aggrieved person with a disability must afford the business a lengthy period to correct the problem. The person whose civil rights are being ignored would have to endure and do all of this before they could even file a lawsuit. The legislation failed to pass the House last year due to successful activism from the disability community to squelch it, but under a new administration, it's reared its head again. In a letter to lawmakers, the Consortium of Citizens with Disabilities wrote, quote, If, after 27 years, a business has continued to not comply with the requirements of this legislation, why should a person have to wait more time for enforcement of their civil rights? Should an individual who is not allowed to enter a restaurant because of their race, gender, or religion have to wait before seeking to enforce their civil rights? Unquote. You can help kill this bill again, and perhaps for good, by calling your legislators today and telling them you will not stand for legislation that weakens the ADA and puts more burden on the very people it aims to protect, while businesses continue to violate a 27-year-old civil rights law. Get up to speed on the bill, read the statements from the disability community, and watch and share videos about the importance of the ADA and how we can build on it on the National Disability Rights Network website at ndrn.org. The second notes include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources and as always this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the activism tab at bestoftheleft.com so if defending civil rights for all is important to you be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about telling congress to protect the americans with disabilities act via social media so that others in your network can spread the word too
I'll never forget the sound of laughing with my friends. I'll never forget the sound of my mother's voice right before I fell asleep. And I'll never forget the comforting sound of water trickling down a stream. Imagine my fear, pure fear, when at the age of 10, I was told I was going to lose my hearing. And over the next five years, it progressed until I was classified as profoundly deaf. But I believe that losing my hearing was one of the greatest gifts that I've ever received. You see, I get to experience the world in a unique way. And I believe that these unique experiences that people with disabilities have is what's going to help us make and design a better world for everyone, both for people with and without disabilities. Now, I used to be a disability rights lawyer, and I spent a lot of my time focused on enforcing the law, ensuring that accommodations were made. And then I had to quickly learn international policy because I was asked to work on the UN Convention that protects people with disabilities. As the leader of the NGO there, I spent most of my energy trying to convince people about the capabilities of people with disabilities. But somewhere along the way, and after many career transitions that my parents weren't so happy about, <laughs> I stumbled upon a solution that I believe may be an even more powerful tool to solve some of the world's greatest problems, disability or not. And that tool is called design thinking. Design thinking is a process for innovation and problem solving. There are five steps. The first is defining the problem and understanding its constraints. The second is observing people in real life situations and empathizing with them. Third, throwing out hundreds of ideas. The more, the better. The wilder, the better. Fourth, prototyping. Gathering whatever you can, whatever you can find to mimic your solution, to test it, and to refine it. And finally, implementation. Ensuring that the solution you came up with is sustainable. Warren Berger says that Design thinking teaches us to look sideways, to reframe, to refine, to experiment, and probably most importantly, ask those stupid questions. Design thinkers believe that everyone is creative. They believe in bringing people from multiple disciplines together because they want to share multiple perspectives and bring them together and ultimately merge them to form something new. Design thinking is such a successful and versatile tool that has been applied in almost every industry. I saw the potential that it had for the issues that I faced, so I decided to go back to school and get my master's in social design.
This looks at how to use design to create positive change in the world. While I was there, I fell in love with woodworking. But what I quickly realized was that I was missing out on something. As you're working with a tool, right before it's about to kick back at you, which means the piece or the tool jumps back at you, it makes a sound. And I couldn't hear this sound. So I decided, why not try and solve it? My solution was a pair of safety glasses that were engineered to visually alert the user to pitch changes in the tool before the human ear could pick it up. Why hadn't tool designers thought of this before? <laughs> Two reasons. One, I was a beginner. I wasn't weighed down by expertise or conventional wisdom. The second is I was deaf. My unique experience of the world helped inform my solution. And as I went on, I kept running into more and more solutions that were originally made for people with disabilities and that ended up being picked up, embraced, and loved by the mainstream, disability or not. This is the OXO potato peeler. It was originally designed for people with arthritis, but it was so comfortable, everybody loved it. <laughs> Text messaging. That was originally designed for people who are deaf. And as you know, everybody loves that too. <laughs> I started thinking, what if we changed our mindset? What if we started designing for disability first, not the norm? As you've seen, when we design for disability first, we often stumble upon solutions that are not only inclusive, but also are often better than those when we design for the norm. And this excites me, because this means that the energy it takes to accommodate someone with a disability can be leveraged, molded, and played with as a force for creativity and innovation. This moves us from the mindset of trying to change the hearts and the deficiency mindset of tolerance to becoming an alchemist, the type of magician that this world so desperately needs to solve some of its greatest problems. Now, I also believe that people with disabilities have great potential to be designers within this design thinking process. Without knowing it from a very early age, I've been a design thinker, fine-tuning my skills. Design thinkers are, by nature, problem solvers. So imagine listening to a conversation and only understanding 50% of what is said. You can't ask them to repeat every single word. They would just get frustrated with you. So, without even realizing it, my solution was to take the muffled sound that I heard, that was the beat, and turn it into a rhythm, and place it with the lips that I read. Years later, someone commented that my writing had a rhythm to it. Well, 
This is because I experience conversations as rhythms. I also became really, really good at failing. <laughs> Quite literally. My first semester in Spanish, I got a D. But what I learned was that when I picked myself up and I changed a few things around, eventually, I succeeded. To similarly, design thinking encourages people to fail and fail often because eventually you'll succeed. Very few great innovations in this world have come from someone succeeding on the first try. I also experienced this lesson in sports, and I'll never forget my coach saying to my mom that if she just didn't have her hearing loss, she would be on the national team. But what my coach, and what I didn't even know at the time, was that my hearing loss actually helped me excel at sports. You see, when you lose your hearing, not only do you adapt your behavior, but you also adapt your physical senses. One example of this is that my visual attention span increased. Imagine a player, a soccer player, coming down the left flank. Imagine being a goalkeeper like I was. And the ball is coming down the left flank. A person with normal hearing would have a visual perspective of this. I had the benefit of a spectrum this wide. So I picked up the players over here that were moving about and coming down the field. And I picked them up quicker so that if the ball was passed, I could reposition myself and be ready for that shot. So as you can see, I've been a design thinker for nearly all my life. My observation skills have been honed so that I pick up on things that others would never pick up on. My constant need to adapt has made me a great ideator and problem solver. And I've often had to do this within limitations and constraints. This is something that designers also have to deal with frequently. Now, my work most recently took me to Haiti. Design thinkers often seek out extreme situations because that often informs some of their best designs. In Haiti, it was like a perfect storm. I lived and worked with 300 deaf individuals. They were relocated after the 2010 earthquake. But five and a half years later, there still was no electricity. There still was no safe drinking water. There was still no job opportunities. There was still rampant crime, and it went unpunished. International aid organizations came one by one, but they came with predetermined solutions. They didn't come ready to observe and to adapt based on the community's needs. One organization gave them goats and chickens, but they didn't realize that there was so much hunger in that community that when the deaf went to sleep at night and they couldn't hear, people broke in to their yards and their homes and they stole these chickens and these goats, and eventually they were all gone. Now, 
If that organization had taken the time to observe deaf people, to observe the community, they would have realized their problem. And perhaps they would have come up with a solution, something like a solar light lighting up a secure pin to put them in at night to ensure their safety. You don't have to be a design thinker to insert the ideas that I've shared with you today. You are creative. You are a designer. Everyone is. Let people like me help you. Let people with disabilities help you look sideways and in the process solve some of the greatest problems. We just heard clips today starting with Counterspin discussing the media's lackluster coverage of disabilities and the ADA. The then-named Talk Poverty Radio discussed bringing disability into the mainstream of diversity politics. Backstory examined the history and present of disability-based discrimination in immigration policy. Black Girls Talking talked about disabled representation in the progressive movement. Our activism for today is in defense of the Americans with Disabilities Act against those who would weaken it to benefit business. And finally, we just heard a TED Talk by Elise Roy about how designing for disability ends up benefiting everyone. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now we're actually going to hear a few more clips, uh, but these are on a more personal note. This first one is from 2003, and we'll introduce you to a young guy named Nick Dupree. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Lynn Neary. In Alabama, a college student who is so disabled that he can't move his body is taking on the state health care system. He's fighting a policy he says might force him to move into a nursing home. He wants the state to start a new program to pay for him to stay at home. That might seem unlikely at a time of high state budget deficits, but Nick Dupree just might win, as NPR's Joseph Shapiro reports. At the age of 20, Nick Dupree is a small man, barely five feet tall. He's propped up, belted into his motorized wheelchair. Behind the seat, there's a portable ventilator. That's the breathing machine that keeps Nick Dupree alive. The machine's whoosh punctuates his presence in the room. It's not easy to hear Dupree when he speaks. His voice is soft, weakened by his muscular dystrophy. But there's defiance in his words when he says he wants the same things in life as anybody else. I want a life. I just want a life. Like anyone else. Just like your life. Or anyone else's life. Dupree says his life is pretty good for now. He tries to make it as typical as he can. My life, right now, is I'm at home with my family. I'm going to college. But when he goes to class, a nurse goes with him. That's because Dupree needs constant attention. If his breathing tube pops out, and it does happen, he could die if someone is not there to attach it. He can't move his own body. He can't move his legs or arms, but he does move one thumb and one index finger, 
enough for Dupree to control a computer. And from that computer, he's waged a battle to stay independent, possibly, he says, to save his own life. He's been trying to change an Alabama policy that would stop paying for the health care he depends on. With his computer, he sends email messages to politicians and policymakers. He's created his own website. He remembers when he started the Internet campaign he calls Nick's Crusade, down to the exact date in March, nearly two years ago. March 19th, 2001 is when I started this, almost two years ago. When I started it, I started very small. Very small. And what started very small has gotten rather big. Dupree lives at home with his family. He's an A-minus student at nearby Spring Hill College in Mobile, Alabama. That's possible thanks to Medicaid, the state and federal health program for the poor. Alabama Medicaid pays for the nurse who takes Dupree to class. It pays for 16 hours of nursing care every day. That's expensive, but the federal government requires all states to provide such care to children. What happens when Nick Dupree turns 21 and becomes an adult is another matter. His 21st birthday is just days away, on February 23rd. And Alabama's policy has been to end such in-home care at age 21. Even though the good care Nick Dupree has gotten at home is a major reason he's lived so long. Dupree sits next to his mother, Ruth Belasco. He watches her with a steely, serious expression that rarely changes. His mother says her son should not be at risk simply because he's having a birthday. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. It's inhumane. Well, it's also inhumane. The state is sort of... Not moral. (laughs) They're cutting people off. It's saying, there's no care. We'll just put this guy in a corner and hope for the best. Even with the nursing care the state provides during the day, Belasco covers the night shift. She's a single mother. She can't quit her job as a college art professor. She'd lose the insurance that pays Nick's other medical bills. Dupree knows that Alabama would pay for him to move into a nursing home. That's something he says he won't do. And besides, he says the nearest facility that would take someone on a ventilator is two states away, in Louisiana. Dupree and his mother have met others in Alabama who did turn 21. Their families faced a choice that, to Belasco, isn't much of a choice at all. Send the child to a nursing home and hope that if a ventilator tube comes loose, that an aide will be close by to hear the alarm go off. Or keep the person at home and let family members try to take on all of the exhausting, round-the-clock care. Well, some said, we're going to try and figure out how to do this at home. And um, then some others went and died. Um, not at home, no. Right, and some died at home, too. That, that, that's a horrible idea, too, that after you've been awake for 48 hours and you can't stay awake anymore to watch your child, you fall asleep so heavily that you can't hear the alarm going off and your child dies. And that's a horrible idea, too. With time running out before he turns 21, Dupree stepped up the Internet campaign. And today, Nick Dupree got some good news. Alabama Medicaid officials announced that they plan to start a new program, one that will continue in-home nursing care to people like Dupree once they turn 21. Mary Hayes Finch of Alabama Medicaid says the state will seek approval from Washington. Officials at the Federal Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services got Alabama's request today, and they say they will handle it with speed. Still, officials such as Finch 
give Nick Dupree only grudging credit. Certainly he's been very vocal and he's been very involved in the process uh, and he's to be commended for that. We have been working on the project for about a year and a half uh, trying to find an option that would provide care for him and others in his situation. It's been two years since Dupree started his crusade, so he isn't celebrating yet. It's not certain that a new program will be approved and running by his birthday, although federal and state officials clearly see that as their deadline. That's why Dupree's attorney is going forward with a lawsuit. A hearing is scheduled for tomorrow afternoon in federal court in Montgomery. At the same time, advocates in Washington will protest outside the White House. Details of the proposed program have not been made public, but officials say Dupree is likely to get about what he gets now, 16 hours a day of in-home nursing care. And the new program would cover someone else who matters to Dupree, his brother, Jamie. Jamie has the same disease and needs the same care. He's 18. That would relieve Ruth Belasco. Still, even with paid nurses, she'll always be the main caregiver for her disabled sons. And she knows other Alabama families who, even with a new program, won't be getting any help. A friend of ours who turned 21 last year, uh, there was a nurse caring for him, and at the stroke of midnight, she left when his birthday came. That man now depends upon shifts of volunteers, parents, family, and members of his church. People like him who've already turned 21 are not expected to get coverage under a new Alabama program. And that's why Dupree says Nick's crusade will keep going. I'm going to keep mining for everyone else, even at my win. No one knows exactly how many people there are like Nick Dupree around the country. Most states provide more care than Alabama, but most states still leave people with less care than they need. Until Nick Dupree led his crusade, they were largely an unseen population. Joseph Shapiro, NPR News, Washington. Now, I first heard that clip back in 2007 when Nick sent it to me. Uh, Best of the Left was launched in 2006, and Nick was a listener from very near the beginning. In those early days, uh, I was working every angle I could to make the show possible while I still had to work a full-time job. So in addition to asking for help gathering clips, I also asked volunteers to help produce individual episodes so people were actually editing episodes of the show themselves, and they just had a little bit of guidance from me uh, compiling the clips. Uh, And Nick was one of the people who volunteered to produce an episode of Best of the Left, except if I'm remembering correctly, I don't think he wanted help gathering clips. He wanted to do an episode on healthcare, and he already knew what clips he wanted to put into the show, including that clip we just heard about his own story. Nick passed away this past February, just shy of his 35th birthday, and Obviously, I was sorry to hear about that, and it reminded me how glad I was that our lives had intersected. I have two more clips for you. Uh, All Things Considered did a follow-up story on Nick's passing, and our mutual friend Dan Carlin had some kind words for Nick as well that I just can't top, so I'm going to play his tribute to finish us off for the day. An advocate for people with disabilities died over the weekend. Nick Dupree had a neuromuscular disease and depended on a respirator to breathe. We first heard him on this show in 2003. The state of Alabama had been paying for nurses to come into his home and even take him to college classes, but that care was about to end and he was facing life in a nursing home where he feared he would die. Here's what Nick and his mother told NPR back then. You can hear the sound of his wishing ventilator in the background. 
It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. It's inhumane. Well, it's also inhumane. The state is sort of... Not moral. (laughs) They're cutting people off. It's saying, there's no care. We'll just put this guy in a corner and hope for the best. NPR's Joseph Shapiro has this remembrance. Tomorrow would have been Nick Dupree's 35th birthday. When he was about to turn 21, all he wanted was a life. I want a life. I just want a life. Like anyone else. Just like your life. Or anyone else's life. Every state has a program that pays for in-home care for severely disabled children, but only until they turn 21. Dupree started an online campaign, he called it Nick's Crusade, to keep that care going. And just days before his birthday, he won and forced change in Alabama. A few years after that, he decided to move to New York City. And there he made friends, he went to museums. Nick could move just the tip of his thumb and his index finger. Just enough to make online comic books that reflected his quirky humor, like Theodore Roosevelt and the Rough Riders versus Zombies. One more important thing happened in New York. Here's his mother, Ruth Belasco, speaking this morning. It was just wonderful that he fell in love. And it was it was a wonderful story. And it was something that he always hoped for, you know. Very romantic young guy. And he actually found someone who loved him. And he loved in return. That woman who he met online was Alejandra Espina. We had vows. We had lots of people. There was food. Their wedding ceremony was in Central Park. And it was very windy that day, which didn't play well with the ventilators, but it was all right. They held the wedding, but like other people with disabilities, they didn't officially marry because their incomes would be counted together and Medicaid would have cut Nick's benefits. He lived with me in an apartment in the community for seven years and eight months. She knows exactly because that's how Nick, who wasn't supposed to live past his 21st birthday, counted days and time. The ending to Nick's story, though, is not a happy one. The people who loved him ended up feeling helpless and guilty because it's really hard to provide round-the-clock care. Espina has cerebral palsy and uses a wheelchair. When nurses didn't show up for their shifts, she and Nick would fight over caregiving. They separated last spring. Nick decided to move to a hospital, the place he tried to avoid his whole life. In recent months, he got pneumonia and bed sores. Each time he got sick... Again, it would be worse and worse and worse. And his ability to withstand that just ran out. His mother, Ruth Belasco, wanted him to come home to Alabama, but that wasn't easy. She already spends her nights caring for Nick's younger brother, who has the same disease. Then last week, Nick got sepsis and heart problems and died. Joseph Shapiro, NPR News. His real name was Nick Dupree, so, you know, Brother Dupree, bro-dupe. And Nick was an amazing man. Many of you knew Nick. I mean, you can go Google his name and read news articles about how amazing a guy he was. It was quite a long period of time after I'd started, you know, interacting with Nick and reading these long walls of text where he would argue passionately about especially healthcare-related issues, but everything under the sun took me a while before I think either Nick or somebody else told me, you know, 
Nick is typing all of these characters on the screen that you read one at a time with his thumb, which is one of the few parts of him that moved, using a trackball and special software. Nick was totally disabled, had a ventilator, confined to a wheelchair, and did more with his life than a lot of able-bodied people do. A lot of so-called able-bodied people would be proud as heck to have their obituary include what a guy who didn't even make it to 35 years old and was dealt a tough hand in life what he was able to do. Remember, it's not about the hand you're dealt, but how you play it. And I remember going to a funeral for somebody once where he was in the same circumstance in terms of just having been dealt a tough, tough hand in the game of life and played it magnificently. And the guy at the funeral just said, Bravo. And I think that's how I feel about Nick. He's just, Bravo. You did it better than any of the rest of us could do it. Mm-hmm. 